end. Uh, but our scripture reading this morning is taken from the epistle uh, of Paul to the Ephesians, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. It gives a, uh, one of the most striking pictures of both the, the depravity uh, and sinfulness of man uh, uh, juxtaposed with, with God's everlasting mercy. And so I thought it would be very helpful as we consider the passage out of 2 Samuel 24 to read this beautiful picture of God's uh, his justice, uh, the, the sinfulness of sin, uh, but also God's mercy. And then our sermon passage is 2 Samuel 24, verses 10 to 17. So stretching out 2 Samuel, stretching out these books as long as we can go. Um, uh, but uh, Lord willing, in the coming weeks, we'll make our way to the end of 2 Samuel, and then we'll just dip our, dip our toe into 1 Kings as we uh, finish out uh, this uh, portion of Scripture that has to do with King David. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 is our Scripture reading. Our sermon passage is 2 Samuel 24, 10 to 17. Brothers and sisters, you have the privilege now of sitting under the public reading of God's Word. God's people have been doing this, not merely for generations, but for millennia. They gather together. Before they had copies of the Bible in their own hands, they would gather together, they would assemble as a body to hear God's Word read and then preached, explained, giving the meaning of the text. And so we are carrying on this tradition that God's people have been engaged in for thousands of years. We are just one little part uh, of the greater work uh, that the Lord has been uh, uh, carrying out for all that time. So just to place yourself in some historical context, uh, just a moment before God's word is to be read. Please give your full attention to it. There's nothing better that you can be doing right now than listening to the Lord speak to you. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now turning to God's word in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 24, beginning reading at verse 10 and reading through verse 17. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. 
Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, See, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. When David spoke to the Lord, when he saw the, then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Thus ends the reading of God's most holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible word. His word that he has preserved for you. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful, as we've just said, that you've kept your word for us. You have preserved it down through the ages, and we are grateful for every, every bit of it, every morsel. Every portion of your word is a feast. And we are grateful that you use it by your spirit as he applies it, as he opens our minds, as he illumines us and applies it to our hearts. We are grateful, Lord, that you nourish us with it, that it is indeed a feast for our souls. Lord, please feed us today. We pray that we would have a hunger, a true hunger for your word. And that you would satisfy us with it. As your word has been read and as it is now preached. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Now in the first part of chapter 24, we read of how the anger of God was kindled against Israel once again. And he, by means of Satan, according to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, incited David to take a census of Israel. Now, the first instance referenced in the epilogue of God's anger being kindled against Israel was, was because Saul had struck down the Gibeonites, with whom Israel had made a covenant in the days of Joshua. This time... The offense for which God's anger was kindled isn't mentioned specifically. We don't know why God became angry with Israel when he did. But some scholars do believe that it might have been a result of the peoples having joined in with the rebellions of Absalom and Sheba. That's a possibility. The people rejected God's king, the one that he had set on the throne before them. And in a sense, they were rejecting God himself in doing so. And so that very well could have been the reason why God uh, chose to punish Israel. In the first instance, with Saul uh, violating the covenant that had been made with the Gibeonites, David had to make amends to the Gibeonites who had survived uh, because of Saul's treachery. In the instance in chapter 24, though God is angry at Israel, it is David's census which serves as the trigger for God's judgment to begin. 
David's census, then, is the proximate cause of God's judgment, while the distant but ultimate cause is Israel's sin, whatever that sin might have been. The way the author of 2 Samuel writes it, it seems as though almost as soon as the census is completed and Joab has given his report on the status of their forces, David is convicted over the sinfulness of his census. But to some, this passage may seem extremely harsh. The Israelites committed some unspecified sin, and then David ordered a census of the people to be taken, and the consequence of these actions is the deaths of 70,000 men. That sounds a lot more like the sinners in the hands of an angry God than it does saints in the hands of a merciful God. It seems harsh to our modern ears, and we're tempted to say things about the God of the Old Testament as opposed to the God of the New. But what this passage really shows us is the heinous, heinousness and the hideousness of sin, which is brought to, brought, uh, to light by the severity of God's judgment. In addition to showing us the heinousness and the hideousness of sin, it also shows us the mercy of God, who stayed his hand. Because David would rather fall into the hand of his covenant-keeping God than into the hands of men. As we work our way through the sermon today, I'd ask you to keep this thought before you. Whether in bitterly hard times or times of great joy, it's better to be in the hands of the Lord than anywhere else. Again, whether in bitterly hard times or in times of great joy, it's better to be in the hands of the Lord than anywhere else. The sermon today is a four-pointer to break uh, with uh, the usual. The first point is true sorrow for sin. The second point, the Lord's choice. The third point, sin's consequence. And the fourth, the mercy of the Lord. Again, true sorrow for sin is the first point of the sermon. The Lord's choice, the second. Sin's consequence, the third And then finally, the mercy of the Lord. So let's look at true sorrow for sin. In verse 10, we read, But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to Yahweh, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Yahweh, please take away the the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now, there's really nothing that's in the preceding nine verses to prepare us for what happens in verse 10. Up to this point, David had been resolute in his decision to number his people, even in the face of Joab's pushing back in verse 3. David was determined to take a census. But now, once the census had been completed, the results of the count had been handed in, David is overcome with the knowledge that what he has done is a great sin against the Lord. Now, you remember that in the case of David's sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, it took Nathan the prophet coming to David and convicting him of his sin, which brought David to sorrowful repentance. In this case, in the case before us today, we can safely assume that the Holy Spirit directly worked upon David's heart to bring true sorrow for his sin and repentance. And the evidence for true sorrow on David's part is his confession of his sin without being provoked by any external source, but also by the fruit of repentance that David displays. He displays it in this passage. He displays it in the final passage of chapter 24. He submits himself to the Lord and whatever the Lord decides, but also 
In the last passage of chapter 24, he commits himself at his own expense to build an altar and make burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. Now in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, Paul writes there, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. David exhibits godly grief for his sin. And that grief was the merciful work of God in him. You can see this at the end of our passage in verse 17. Where where David pleads to the Lord. He calls his people sheep. David finally remembers that these are not a people to be exploited. They are sheep and he is their shepherd. He begs the Lord not to, to do anything against them, anything further. He acknowledges that it's he who has sinned, even though he doesn't realize that Israel has indeed sinned. He's he's taking that upon himself. David does exhibit godly grief, true grief, true sorrow for his sin. That brings us to the second point of the sermon, the Lord's choice. The prophet Gad makes his second appearance here after a long time of going unmentioned in these books. We first read of Gad in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 5, when David was at what became known as his stronghold, the cave of Adullam. And there Gad told David to remain in the cave, but not to remain in the cave, rather, but to depart and go to the land of Judah. And that's all that we hear about Gad until our passage this morning. Here in verses 11 and 12, God tells Gad, who by this time had become David's seer, he would have been sort of the court prophet at that point, Uh, The Lord tells Gad to go to David to tell him that he must choose one of three consequences that God offers for his sins as well as for the sins of Israel. And so we read in verse 13 that Gad went to David and laid out for him the three options for punishment which David must choose. Now this is a painful thing and sometimes parents may, may use this. Their child has been wayward, disobedient, done something wrong and the parent says, okay, You've got three choices of punishment. What would you rather have? And they lay it out. And if you have a child who's ever experienced that kind of thing, it's, it's painful. You have to choose your own punishment. A lesson, a strong lesson is learned through that. The first option that is laid out for David is three years of famine for Israel. Three years. People are starving to death. The second option is three months of fleeing from their enemies. And the third is three days of pestilence. Now David knows that one of these choices will be the punishment for his sin of taking the census. What David doesn't know, probably doesn't know, is that God will be punishing the people of Israel for their sins at the same time. David thinks this is all his fault. Israel had kindled the Lord's anger against them. And David's sin was, in a sense, the vehicle by which the nation was being punished. But by the choices that God gives David through the prophet, David may well have a sense of the fact that the punishment is for sins beyond what he committed in conducting a census. But there's little doubt that David was shocked by these choices. He probably was very surprised And in verse 14, he tells Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of Yahweh, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall 
into the hand of men. David well remembers his years of fleeing from his enemies, whether it was Saul or the Philistines or from the army of his own son Absalom. He does not want to go through that again. He's an old man by this time. He is tired. He does not want to be on the run. But what does that mean? It means on the one hand choosing three years of famine or on the other three days of pestilence. And so he tells Gad he'd rather not choose option two. He does not want to be pursued by his foes for three months. But as for the other two, he will leave leave it in the hand of the Lord to decide. And of those two, the Lord gave David and his people the lighter punishment in one sense. As bad as it was, a pestilence of three days. And it doesn't seem as though God actually went on that long. This was far better than three years of famine. The loss of life would have been astronomical, astonishing had it come to that. There's no doubt that David remembered the Lord's covenants that he had made, both to David but also with his people. And David placed all of their lives in the Lord's hand, knowing that God would not be as severe to them as their sins deserved. And that brings us to the third section of the sermon, Sin's Consequence. David asked that he not fall into the hand of men, not wanting to be pursued for three months by his enemies. The other choices God gave him were a famine lasting three years or pestilence lasting three days, and David left it up to the Lord. And God chose the shortest duration of the options. Verse 15 says, So Yahweh sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. Now, if these were all men in David's army, if these were men whom Joab had just counted for the census, 70,000 would represent about 5.5% of the total forces, which seems small until you think about 70,000 men dying in battle. Let's put that into a little bit of context. That's more than American combat deaths in World War I, which had 53,402 combat deaths. The U.S. entered World War I in 1917 and ended, that war ended a year later for them, although it was longer uh, for the other forces. The Vietnam War. The U.S. entered the Vietnam War, the ground combat operations in 1965 and withdrew in 1973, and during that time, a little under 45,000 combat deaths happened over the course of eight years. In the Civil War, In contrast, 214,938 men died over a period of four years. The pestilence that the Lord sent upon Israel, as we'll see, lasted maybe three days, possibly less, during which 70,000 men died. If this were a single battle of war, it would have been grievous and terrible. And indeed it was. It was a grievous loss for David and the people of Israel. Thousands and thousands of families were plunged into sorrow over the deaths of fathers, grandfathers, sons, husbands. Now a person might be tempted to use the massive number of deaths to try and show what a big meanie God is. And people do. They don't actually believe the Bible But they use these figures from the Old Testament and they say, look at this God of the Old Testament. He is angry. He's mean. How could he do such a terrible injustice upon the people of Israel? 
that would be to presume that God was unjust in sending the pestilence upon Israel. That line of reasoning seeks to make God answerable to us, which simply cannot be. God cannot be unjust. So that point is moot. Another way to look at the the death toll is to see it as this great number of men who died is, is giving us an indication of the heinousness of sin. The consequence of sin points to its heinousness. Sin is the true killer here. And ultimately, in every case, every death happens as a consequence of sin. Not necessarily the sin of the individual who died, certainly, ultimately, as a consequence of the sin of Adam in the garden who brought death into the world. Death is a consequence of sin. Had sin never happened in this world, there would be no death. It was through sin that death, spiritual and physical, entered into God's good creation. If it weren't for sin, no one would die. But in a specific sense, these 70,000 men died because of specific sins. Their deaths were the 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 consequence, the punishment for their sin. Not necessarily these men individually, but Israel as a body, as a group. As we said before, we're left to speculate what Israel had done to kindle the anger of the Lord against them. But we can know with certainty that it was heinous sin because the consequences of it were so severe and all sin ultimately is heinous. Now many times in our life, we don't face immediate consequences for specific sins we commit. Sometimes we do. Many times we don't. And we absolutely must not assume whenever we go through trials that it's because of a sin we committed if it didn't obviously come as a result of sin that we committed. (coughs) Nor should we assume that about others. Job taught us that. The righteous do suffer simply by living in a fallen world. But our trials, our sufferings, and the sufferings of humanity throughout history show us the heinousness of of sin on a cosmic scale. We tend to minimize the seriousness and the heinousness of sin. But the consequences that came as a result of Adam's sins show us how seriously God takes sin. And the consequences that befall Israel show how terrible their sin against God was. And so rather than saying that God was unjust in his treatment of Israel, we ought to say that Israel's traitorous behavior resulted in justice upon their heads because of their sins. Even so, as severe as God's punishment was, and it was, 70,000 men is nothing to, uh, to snicker at. If God had not shown mercy, it would have been far worse. That brings us to the fourth and the final point of the sermon, the mercy of the Lord. Now, the opening paragraph of chapter 2 of Paul's letter to the Ephesian churches is 10 verses long, and it begins with Paul writing these words, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is the state in which a person who has not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit exists. Their existence is one of spiritual death. 
And Paul continues saying that we all once lived among this group of people. That was the state at one point or other in our lives for every one of us. We lived in the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires of our bodies and our minds. We were by nature children of wrath like everyone else in all of humanity. And then verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That but at the beginning of verse 4 is the biggest but in Scripture. It's the most important but in Scripture. We did not deserve it. We were by nature children of wrath, deserving God's wrath. Every single bit of it. Down to the dregs. But God. Rich in mercy. In love. Saved us. He made us alive with Christ. Sin, brothers and sisters, is heinous. Sin is completely antithetical to who God is. Sin, even the smallest sin, is cosmic treason against God. It is deserving of eternal punishment in hell. It is. And we minimize our sin to our own peril. But God is rich in mercy. And he is rich in mercy because he loves his people. He loves those who are or who will be his saints. Now God was righteously angry at the Israelites and with David. But when David asked God to choose the punishment that Israel would receive, God chose the one that would last three days instead of three months or three years. And verse 15 says that Yahweh sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the the appointed time. And during that time, 70,000 men from Dan to Beersheba died. But verse 16 gives reason to believe that perhaps the pestilence that fell upon Israel didn't continue to spread for three full days. Perhaps it did, perhaps it didn't. It's somewhat ambiguous. Verse 16 says, And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, Yahweh relented from the calamity. And said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of Yahweh was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. The implication of verse 16 is that the angel of the Lord should have continued on in working destruction. And that comes to us through the word translated relented in verse 16, which in the King James Version is translated repented. Here we go again. Oh boy, what does this mean? It seems to indicate that God changed his mind. The angel of the Lord, this angel of God's destruction, was headed toward Jerusalem. He had gone from Dan to Beersheba, already killed 70,000 more people, the biggest city in the land. He was heading that way to destroy more people because of this pestilence, through this pestilence. But what this means is that from a human standpoint or perspective, the Lord changed his mind. He didn't continue to do what he said he would do. When David saw that it was pestilence that the Lord had brought upon the people instead of famine, he would have naturally assumed that it would last for three days. And if it stopped in fewer than three days, he would have assumed that God had changed his mind. 
And the key for our understanding is the phrase in verse 15, until the appointed time, which is a reference to God's secret or hidden or decretive will in contrast to his revealed will. It had been appointed in eternity past that the angel of the Lord would stop short of wreaking destruction on Jerusalem. God didn't change his mind that day because of David's pleading in verse 17 or for any other reason from eternity past that had been God's plan. Now, I must admit that nowhere does it say that the duration of three full days did not pass before the Lord brought the pestilence to an end. That's the implication. That seems to be what the, uh, the, the passage is hinting at, but not necessarily how it went down. But it certainly seems as though David expected the destruction to continue. He naturally might have assumed that his confession in verse 17 brought things to a halt. He says there, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And amazingly, unbeknownst to David, he is behaving exactly like one who is a type of Christ. Exactly like a type of Christ ought to behave there. He is taking all of the blame and responsibility for the pestilence upon himself. When we know that Israel is at least partly to blame, if not fully to blame. He is making intercession for his sheep, just as Jesus would do 1,000 years later. In the next passage, the final passage of 2 Samuel, David builds an altar upon which to make atonement for his, Israel's sins. 1,000 years later, Jesus will carry the altar upon which we, he will be sacrificed as an atonement for his, his people's sins on his back. David is showing himself to be the true type of Christ in the Old Testament. David firmly believes that it is his sin that caused the destruction by the angel of the Lord. And in that way, he, in a sense, became sin for his people, standing in their place, making atonement for their sins, and propitiating the wrath of God. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin by taking our sins upon himself on the cross so that we sinners would become the righteousness of God. This is what God does for his saints. That is why there's no better place to be than in the hands of the living God. There's no better place. The destruction he wrought on Israel was certainly a foretaste of the day of judgment for those who persist in unbelief to the end. But God stopping short of full destruction shows to us his hand of mercy. And that is the hand, brothers and sisters in which he holds you and me and all the saints who call upon the name of the Lord. And that is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we truly are thankful that you hold us in your hand of mercy. We're thankful, Lord, that you wrap us in your arms. Oh, Father, we are grateful that you have adopted us as your children and that you protect us from all of your and our enemies. We are grateful that those for those who belong to you, no true harm can befall us. But we know that in this life we may endure trials, that we may have a momentary 
time of hardship, but it won't last. And we're grateful for this. We are thankful that the fullness of your wrath that would have been poured out upon our heads on the day of judgment was taken on by our Lord when he suffered and died on the cross. We are grateful, dear Lord, for your hand of mercy. And we're grateful for how you displayed it, even for David and among your Old Testament people. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.